we moved from chapter 1 into chapter 2 last week just a little bit, but today is July the 23rd and we'll start our fourth lesson as we continue to look uh, at information uh, from the book, Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Glad to see that uh, several of you have decided to get the book and so forth and study along. I trust that will generate some questions and so forth. We got more questions last week. I like that. Okay, so once again, don't worry about interrupting me. Just do what you think you need to do, and if you get way out of line, then I'll address it. Anyway, <laughs> but that's good. That's good to see y'all as y'all continue coming in this morning. Last week we got into the first of these 30 scriptures from the New Testament that deal with conscience. We shared some information about that. You'll recall I talked to you about the fact that it's mentioned. the word conscience is mentioned twice in Acts, 20 times in Paul's letters, 5 times in Hebrews, and 3 times in 1 Peter. I gave you that information. We started... Working through these scriptures. Now, our first chapter, of course, dealt with a few of these scriptures ahead of time in order just to lay a good foundation about what we're talking about. When we talk about conscience, we, uh, of course, know that it's that uh, specific uh, Greek word, synodesis, is what we're looking at. In 28 of those 30 times that it's used in the New Testament, it's talking about uh, that that uh, moral judgment that goes on in our mind, so to speak. There'll be two times, it's just two verses, when the word is still rendered the same, I understand, in the original text. But the specific meaning in that particular context is one of consciousness. It's, It's like the opposite of being comatose or something. And we'll point out those verses when we get to them. So words, you know, I guess in the Greek are just like words in in English. It can be the same word, but along with the, uh, you have to look at the context to understand exactly what it's talking about, or a word uh, can can change or have uh, two meanings. It's a whole impetus, you know, in part, you know, behind the, the translations, you know, given the fact that the Bible wasn't written in English, and given the fact that it was written in a whole other part of the world and given the fact that it's been you know so long ago that words change you could probably sit there and come up with a list of words that meant something even in your younger days particularly me since I'm a good bit older but uh, words that I wouldn't use today you know uh, I remember when you could go to the fair and and come home or go somewhere as a kid, just somewhere, go to the zoo or something and come home talking about, boy, we just had a gale time, you know. We don't say that anymore. Why? Because the words have changed. They mean something else, okay. Uh, and there could be a, a, a number of things like that. So when it's appropriate, we'll, of course, look at that and make that distinction. But we know there are at least two times out of the 30 times that this word, synodesis, is used that it means something just a little different. Last week we talked from Acts chapter 20, uh, or 23 verse 1 when we finished up with Paul. Kind of went back and looked a little bit about Paul and uh, you know what he brought to the table and what was going on with him. And then in Acts 23 as that record comes to a close, we shared you know that scripture that says, And looking intently at the council, and that council was the Sanhedrin of course, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. 
So Paul begins making this application of conscience uh, or, or doing it from a very personal perspective. He's talking about his conscience. He's not talking about conscience in general. And as we follow through with our in taking our uh, conscience scriptures, if you will, in order in the New Testament, the fir- out of the first four, three of them are along that same line. It's Paul making this, this self-assessment, talking about his own conscience. So that takes us up to our next scripture in the next chapter of Acts, Acts 24, 16. Where Paul says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Does this not say that this is very important to him? That this is something that's uh, a high priority in his life as he does what he encourages all Christians to do, to examine him own self, to examine his motives and so forth. To make sure on a very practical level when he's telling somebody to do this or to do that or giving them direction or doctrinal clarification, that he's sure that, well, that's a reality in his own life. Okay? You know, I'm sure perhaps he's familiar with the words of Jesus who talked about, you know, getting the, the beam out of your own eye before you could get the speck out of somebody else's eye. And the point I'm trying to make here is that this is very personal to Paul. This is something that he has internalized. This is a very important process. And he says, I take pains to do this. This, this is not always easy, is it? And this will be a continual theme that we'll kind of address as we go along. If, if we want the Word to do its work in our heart and life of changing or uh, you know, modifying where necessary and always according to the Word, modifying our conscience, okay, shaping our conscience. We have to be willing for that to happen. Paul takes pains to have a clear conscience. What does that involve? Are we far enough along in this study for you to sh- share s- some, some of those realities right now? What, what has it involved for you? What do you think? You follow what I'm saying? How do we take these, these pains? What's so painful about this process? For sure. Exactly. Yeah, and those would be, thank you, those are the two primary things. You've got to be willing to acknowledge your own limitations. As Chris says, see your own sin. And then always comparing that against the Word of God. And I read and studied this verse in a couple of different translations. If you look at it, you know, if you look at the King James or the New King James, following the word conscience, you'll see a phrase. In King James, it says, void of offense. In other words, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience void of offense, or in the New King James, without offense. And if you look in the New American Standard Bible, those, that, that phrase is not italicized, okay? It's not something that was added. It's just for clarity, you know, the different translators didn't see it necessary. I believe they're thinking that thought is evident without it being there, if that makes sense to you. But I find that interesting. Because that, that's what should naturally follow through, if you will. 
okay, void of offense, without offense. In other words, there's been an assessment about a person's words or actions to make sure that it's not offensive, okay, that it's accurate. In other words, we, we take some level of pain, if you will, to, un, to look ahead and see how our actions or our words or maybe even our neglects, our, our, our non-speaking or our non-action affects other people. Now that, I submit to you, is a laborious process. can be. But I also see that it can be something that, ought, that becomes natural for us. If, do you follow what I'm saying? If that's our natural inclination. If we're that concerned about other people um, and about how our words and our actions impact them, if that's truly something that's within us because of the Word of God, I think it becomes, if you will, our, our, our new na- part of our new nature. It's part of what we want to do. It's how we would regularly respond to someone. Do you see that? And we can see that in certain individuals, I think, right? Those are the kind of folks that we kind of, we're more apt to kind of, you know, want to get close to because there's this, this genuineness, this concern, this, this care for us that exudes from them. It's obvious that they're not concerned about themselves. They're truly desiring to, to minister, okay? And that's wholly consistent with what we find in other places in the Scripture where Paul talks about, and we've already mentioned a couple of times, about thinking about the things of others over and above the things of ourselves. So when we look at it like that, we think, wow, do I really think like that? Or have I just thought like that on occasion? Okay, is that re- does that really describe me and my, my natural, if you will, and when I say natural for the believer, I'm talking, of course, about our new nature, but is that the Holy Spirit working through me? Am I being changed into the likeness of Christ to that degree, really? So, if you continue reading in this book, he'll tell you more than once, It's a lifelong process, and you cannot distinguish it from our continual sanctification because it has everything to do with our motivation, the way we treat other people, whether or not we're truly ministers of the Lord Jesus or we're self-serving, you know, one or the other. But he talks about this phrase, void of offense, without offense, and it just simply means you know, not leading to or not particularly in context here, not led into sin. He don't want that to happen in his life. So the writer there says, Paul always tries hard to make sure his actions correspond with what he believes are God's moral standards. Well, yeah, but that's, a, that's more of a difficult process than we would uh, initially think. And then we go from there, we'll have another Verse here in a minute where Paul's talking about his own conscience. And we've already visited the next verse, Romans chapter 2, verses, or verse 15 rather. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts where their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting thoughts. Accuse or even excuse them. We looked at that verse in some detail as one of our kind of a, of a, of a founding verse for us in describing the conscience and what it does, that it does... Uh, accuse or excuse, and with that we begin to focus, as we're doing, upon the work of the conscience and whether or not it needs to be modified, right? 
and how it's founded. Can we trust it? And we talked about the, the fact that the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the conscience. Okay, that the conscience is a human faculty. Uh, believers and non-believers have a conscience, even though I've run into some people in my law enforcement career, and I'm, I'm sure I've made the mistake or made the statement, that, that person has no conscience, okay? There's no way they could have a conscience and do what they did. What's scary is to think about, well, maybe they do have a conscience, but their conscience didn't convict them over their actions. It was right. It was justified in their mind. And that kind of brings this whole thing about modifying the conscience into into clarity, does it not? It's what you think it is, and what you think it is is dependent upon its foundation. God, help us to know the Word of God. Help us to know clearly what it says and how it applies to each and every situation in our life because it will accuse or it will excuse. I couldn't help but think of the verses from Proverbs. You'll be familiar. Uh, Actually, it's in there twice. It's chapter 14, verse 12, and chapter 16, verse 25. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end is the way of death. And when we just concentrate on what we know. So many times when I'm sharing Christ with people or working with somebody, particularly in the workplace and developing relationships and you know, talking to them about the Word of God and so on and so forth. If they're without Christ, they ought, it seems like they always automatically go to this thing about you know, they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They know what they think. They believe like they believe. And their heart is good in that, in that regard. And they're okay with God, you know, in a very general way. It seems like you get that all the time. And I'll come out with this verse <laughs> sometimes to kind of shake them a little bit or to get them to see, well, if you're thinking about the Word of God, this is what He says about your ability to do that. We're talking about a new person. We're talking about uh, not relying upon your own works, you know, so on and so forth, and what feels good to you. We're literally talking about what this, this old book says, because it's the revealed Word of God. Now He reveals Himself to us. He went on in talking about uh, that verse from Romans chapter 2. And he added, uh, Gentiles show by obeying many of God's moral demands, even though they have no access to God's revealed law. You find that in verse 14. That they have a certain consciousness of those moral standards. God has put that within us as human beings. A consciousness, he says, that is clear enough to allow their own mind to either excuse or excuse, or accuse or excuse their actions. It's even clear enough for God to use as evidence on Judgment Day. And you'll recall we went to verse 16 when we looked at 14 and 15 there, talking specifically about the conscience, and talked for some length about the aspect of judgment, how important an awareness that there is an accountability, that there is a judgment, that we will give an account, as it says, as Paul says, how important that is to this understanding about conscience because it, it kind of, for lack of a better term, it drives us to get it right. 
Now, there are other motivations. You know, we just want to be pleasing to God. We want, we want to literally have, as it says, the mind of Christ over issues, over matters, and decision-making in our life. And we know that God has put that there, the law of God, but we know that there's no salvation in the law, correct? There is no salvation in the law. The law tells us what we need. It clarifies it, makes it clear. And the result of that is conviction. Then we go to the grace of God, the mercy of God, the sacrifice of God on our behalf to find salvation. That's why he talks about earlier in Romans chapter 1, he's about nature being a testament to all mankind that there's a God. And he says it's so strong, you don't have an excuse. You're without excuse. The testimony of nature regarding God is so strong, we have no excuse. But the best we can say is that revelation is enough to condemn us, not to save us. No. That's where you get these folks that say, well, I believe in God. I believe in God. Yeah, you do. (laughs) He's, he's, He's put that there, right? But have you surrendered to God? You're still hanging on to your life. You still want it your way. No, because he goes on and talks about these people who do these things that result in evil activity. He says they do them. He said they don't only have joy in doing them. They, they have joy when other people do them. See? Well, God changes us through His Word. Part of that change, of course, is directly related to the function of conscience in our life. So let's go to the next verse, Romans chapter 9. Verse 1, and once again, this is one of those verses, as I said, a personal perspective for Paul. He's looking at his own heart and life when we get up to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. And of course, let me begin by uh, commenting on the context here. Of course, Paul is talking about his love for unbelieving Israel. And then we have this whole wonderful chapter 9 that is just... Oh, it's so so full. But when he starts off, Paul's heart is is broken. Okay? It's it's broken. In fact, it'd probably be better if we just read in chapter 9. Or let me begin in verse 1 and just read the five, first five verses. And then we'll look specifically at, go back to verse 1 where he talks about the conscience. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the the covenants, the the giving of the law, the the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen, he says. Now, reading those five verses, what's on the mind of Paul? What causes him to start off here by talking about his own conscience being clear? To be followed by these remaining verses where he pours out his heart and concern over what? Yeah, lost Israel against all that has been done for them. They are the chosen people of God. He alludes to the messianic line. Hey, 
Messiah came from y'all and my, my heart is broken. You don't get it. You've, you've missed it. You've absolutely missed the Messiah. And he makes this amazing statement. He says, I, talking about he could wish that his, his life and his heart could be accursed. He could be accursed from God, separated from God. Why? Because of his genuine love for his people. That's strong. That's very, very strong. And it's very, very convicting, is it not? And we ask ourselves, do I love lost people like that? Do I? Even even people that I rub elbows with at work and family members, maybe even at church, should be some at church. Is that my heart? Do I, do I literally bleed for them inside? He's talking about something that will change your life. So, yeah, he begins by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's being just as true and open and genuine as he can. Because he's about to start this whole big dialogue, you know, the rest of chapter 9, about Israel and salvation and so forth and the sovereignty of God. What a wonderful, wonderful chapter, chapter 9. So, But that's what's behind this. What's behind this is a deep, abiding love and conviction for other people. That's what's driving this. And the fact that he mentions his conscience up front, he's, he's just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part. I've I I examined myself. Hear me, I'm telling you the truth. There's almost an air of, of pleading, if you will, in what he's saying. And he's talking about the real truth, I guess we could say. It's that Greek word, aletheia, unveiled reality, that which is manifested, the truth, which is in great debate nowadays in our world, is it not? And then he says, I'm, I'm doing this with the witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. So here he's making that distinction. We've said the, the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. And here he talks about both. His conscience bearing him witness. And he's doing it in the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Spirit of God is using that faculty, if you will. That human element of conscience. So we could ask the question to examine our own motivations. Are we acting in the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit of God our motivation as we address these issues of conscience. And we might ask the question, okay, how do we know that? How do we know when that's happening in our life? What would you say? Is your alarm bell going off? Sensitivity. Okay, yeah. Sensitivity. And what is the foundation of that sensitivity? It's already been voiced, but let's, let's emphasize it again. What is that sensitivity always based upon? The Word of God. Okay. And it includes things like love, our genuine love for people, which Paul demonstrates here in these first five verses of chapter 9. The sacrifice, that willing sacrifice. You know, he said, I could give myself up. I could give myself up because of my love for you guys. His obedience to God. And then the things that we think about, the practical things about praying and reading and examining ourselves, bringing ourselves before Him, that, I trust that becomes our great joy in life. 
That that's the way we end our day. That's the way we begin our, begin our day before our feet hit the floor every morning in examining our heart and life, allowing the Word of God to come to bear on everything that's transpired if you're laying down at night and then in the morning if you're getting ready to go and to serve God, then of course we would do the same thing there. Paul's moral consciousness confirms, he says, through the Holy Spirit that he is not lying. We see those two working together. And not so much lying, but, but he's, being, he's being truthful. His intent is not tainted. His motivation is not tainted in any way. He's not self-serving. The conscience can be relied upon and obeyed when it is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Only the Word of God can establish the validity of conscience for us. Only the Word of God can do that. So there we are from Romans chapter 9. Verse 1. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 5. I've got, let's see, 5, 6, 7, 8, a few verses. And then I hope to get to a list uh, which is basically a practical guide about the decision making process. I wanted to get to that and I'll try to do that. Randy's wanting us to really get out of here at 1015 as we should. So we'll see. Romans 13.5. Paul says, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul's making application here. Of course, you understand the context here. This is that uh, uh, chapter about the government and how we are to act. And, you know, it talks about governmental rule. And, of course, every police officer knows about Romans 13. Well, maybe not everyone. I'd be a stretch, uh, but a lot of them know about Romans 13 because it talks about uh, what God has ordained that you know our offices as officers are a part of uh, the order that God has brought you know to society and how we work there. Uh, I've always lumped it into the category of calling, okay, and I believe that even more as I've been involved in the training of officers and seeing officers develop and seeing really good officers come into to, to being. Uh, it's those who are dedicated, who study, who are true servants. They understand the, the uh, servant element of what they do, which, quite frankly, is the predominant element and should be. And all the other things that we do as officers, y'all know I'm an officer, uh, stem from that. But it's always part of that service. That's the context here. Paul makes this application. And this would be huge in his day, would it not? I mean, uh, you know, if you're if you grow, growing up in the Middle East there in, in Jerusalem, I know this is sometime later, but, you know, there's an occupying government there. Okay? This, uh, this, this brought all kinds of difficulties. Okay? All kinds of decision-making. They even came to Jesus and says, hey, are we supposed to be paying these taxes to Caesar? You know, trying to trick him. These were huge issues and so forth. Paul says this is a matter of conscience. And we see later as the church has developed issues of conscience where Peter and others are brought to task. What we Acts 5.29. And they're locked up for doing what God has told them to do. And we get that phrase where he says, you know, whether it's right to obey 
you know, God, I mean, you decide, but we, we, we got to do what we're supposed to do. We got to do. We're going to be true to what has been revealed to us, to the calling in our life. We're going to, we're going to be true to that. On the issue of taxes, Christ would say, you give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give God what belongs to him. And then later on, as in the early days of the church, we see this conflict. And you see people going to prison, okay, for conscience sake. You can't tell us not to preach Christ. He's told us to do it, so we got to do it. End of story, right? Lesson learned. And it's not always that easy, is it? It's not always that easy. What if I give money here to this cause? Where does that money go? Does that make me a part of the evil that comes out of this? All these issues of conscience. Okay? So this is a real deal, real thing. Well, that's the context here, this submission to government. And we've had that. Pastor did a great job of covering that in Romans uh, as he's taught through Romans. And he's still in chapter 14, by the way, this morning. So let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 7, and again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a passage that we want to understand because it pulls out a real-life scenario. Pastor alluded to it, of course, last week in his teaching from Romans 14. Here, we're just going to look at a verse or two as they come into context. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. To give you the background here, of course, you should be familiar with it. Paul's talking about those people who had come out of pagan worship and so forth. Uh, They were new Christians. And think of it, try to think of it like they would be experiencing, just for a moment if you can. I mean, this... Who knows what they were involved in? We can go back from a historical perspective and look at these pagan religions, but they involved everything to, you know, eating and drinking blood and smearing it all over you to, to you know, uh, you know, gross sexual things, even in the context of worship. All these things are just hedonistic. This is what they had come out of. Now, when I say come out of, and Paul's talking about them as believers, we're talking about these people having a born-again experience, which means what? They were confronted at some point with their gross sin, right? Because there's no other way for that to happen, right? That's a true assumption. These are people who at some point were just devastated over what they actually were and what they were doing and what they had been taught and... My goodness, how deep does it go? Raising their kids that way and everything else. And now, through the grace of God, they understand the difference. This is huge. You talk about somebody who can truly see themselves as literally being pulled out of the flames. I mean, this was a lot of these folks. Because the contrast of what they were to what they are now is so great. And we known people like that, and I dare say there may be people in here whose salvation experience is the same, right? Yeah, we're cautioned not to forget, not to forget what we've been saved from. That is a, that is a very healthy thing to do. Even if you were one of those people who grew up in the church and your dad was a 
pastor or preacher something and you got saved at 10 years old or whatever. No, you, you, you met your sins somewhere. You had to, you had to deal with that. You had to deal with conviction, right? Yeah. Don't forget that. But for these people who just lived it, I mean, and lived a long time, it's this, and we're blind, you know. I mean, it's got to be the same experience. Man, I almost went over that cliff. I almost went over it. And out of God's grace and mercy, He pulled me back. I heard the Word. I heard this crazy man, Paul. I heard somebody preaching and the Word of God touched my heart. Now, you want me to go back and eat that same stuff that we used to use in the ceremonies, the pagan ceremonies? And you got Christians over here saying... Well, remember now, there's only one God and you belong to Him now. There's one true God. So that stuff doesn't even exist. Okay? It was a deception. It was a deception to damn you. So, you know, the Word of God says you can partake. Uh, Okay. But they're not quite there with that, right? You see that sensitivity? That's what we as believers have to be sensitive to. On behalf of others. Paul makes reference to those in Scripture. Ye who are spiritual, he says. We're talking about looking after folks. Looking after young believers. Young believers. And again, I read it. 13.5 from Romans. Therefore, one must be in... uh, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 8.7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Right? But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. We can understand that, as I've tried to explain it here, in its historical context, what it was actually applied to there. These people who would go to um, just someone's house or whatever and would eat meat, and they know that at the... Aphrodite temple or whatever, they use this meat, and then when they're done with it, they take it down to the market, and they sell it at a really reduced price. So a lot of people buy it. It's good meat. Nothing wrong with it. You know. But they don't feel good about eating it. What what kind of response do you think some of those people got? Let's just speculate here a little bit. I think it could be helpful. What kind of response might they have gotten from believers who maybe truly loved and cared about them and wanted to bring them along, what response would they have gotten? He's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Well, yeah, or, or hey, man, you, you've been saved out of all that. It don't exist. It's okay. You can eat the meat. It's, it's not going to hurt you at all, right? Yeah, it's just meat. It's just meat. That's what Paul says later. <laughs> he says, it's, there are no gods. You know, there's always little g, you know. There, are, there aren't any. But here the verse includes, there's not everybody has that knowledge. How many times do we think we're right about our actions just because we're in the right? Do you follow what I'm saying? Just because we're right about something, that that in and of itself justifies how we act about it. It doesn't. It doesn't. And the moment we begin thinking it does, we've left this prospect of doing all things in love. Speaking the truth in love, as it says. It tells us that. No. You can't can't pound the Word of God into somebody. I wish you could. I would be doing it. I'd have a big 
55-pound Schofield Bible up here hitting you with it. But it doesn't work that way, does it? But what does work? Loving people. Right. Uh, a very noble... And Why would you push somebody to do something right. that's going to cause them to, to sin? To right. Sin? Right. And the greater sin, of course, being that we would be a part of forcing someone to go against their conscience. See? That's, that's the issue. And all of this is driven... By, obviously understanding the word, understanding where we are, but it's driven, the most basic propellant here is that we are more concerned about other people than we are ourselves. That's what's driving this. That's love, yes. Are you talking about differences in doctrine? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, I'm just, I mean, just, it could be just, I mean, it could be any, any kind of thing. Yeah. Because you know, our well, have to It there gets a little wordy. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody against someone's conscience to to uh, go out to eat on Sunday. Yeah. Okay. All right. But that's not a biblical principle. Right. So if if you don't want to cause someone to sin against our conscience and therefore sin against God, but at the same time you want to minister to them. Right. Yeah. You don't want to just leave them in ignorance. So then you invite them over on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not, not to no, be funny, yeah, yeah, and it's a good one. I had a friend who came and visited here who always wears a coat and tie to church, and he was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, little little things like that. Or y'all have drums? Y'all use drums? Okay, you know, it could be any of those kinds of things. And if it's one of those sensibilities, like I say, we know it's it's certainly not a doctrinal issue or anything. The general command for us is to be sensitive to that. To not let that become a stumbling block. That's what it says. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hoping that they're open to that. Now, you can show them in the Word of God where that is necessary. That's a command for, for all believers. Yeah. There's no growth. Yeah. Yeah. 
here or by our personal personal Bible setting or whatever, or by someone talking to us about things. So, I mean, growth is also important. Yeah. Well, it, I think it's just a matter of degree, and you won't want to artificially raise the, the barrier. Like, like a, a good example, you know, I mean, well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have a, a Jewish or well, that's that's a different religion. But somebody's come out of a Jewish and Muslim context, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have a big giant barbecue. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just rubbing it in their face. I think there's a there's a you, you, those you want to gently instruct them. It's it's the kind kind of the you just don't want to. Put it in their face as much. I, I, I yeah. understand your issue of the balance, but you, I think you just want to artificially raise the barrier. Yeah. And part of it is like, if, if their desire to please the Lord and what they're doing is not harming anyone, then, I mean, like the people not wanting to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols, the way you painted that picture, I mean, I think about. Uh, just, I mean, so many situations like, uh, like if you had a man that was involved in immorality, and then his conscience now is like, but I'm not going to be alone on an elevator with a woman, or I'm mm-hmm. not going to, you know, do this, I'm not going to do that. You, you know, there's no harm in that. In fact, that's, that's a lot of wisdom yeah. in that. Yeah. You know, it, why would you want to educate them? Even though it's like you didn't sin by getting in an elevator with this woman to go up to your work, you really know this, you know what I mean? Well, that that's true, but one you know, let's take that that area in particular. You know, relationship, sex relationship. You don't know where they are. You don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know what they're coming coming out of. Okay, this this might be something that is absolutely necessary for them right now. It's wise. You know, the Bible also says make no provision for the flesh. You know, as a matter of of wisdom, and we apply that as necessary. You know, throughout. You don't know. But the point is you, you respect that. You think of the other person more than yourself. And this, this, con- this will never end. <laughs> you know, it does. It, and it requires us literally to do that with everybody we meet. I mean, even people that we, that we worship here with, there are differences. Okay, there are differences. And the Word of God tells us in somewhat a general way about how we're to approach that. I go back to the, the verse about doing it in love, that people always being able to see the sincerity of our motivation, not to force someone to do something, not to put somebody in some religious box or something so that now they're part of the team. We don't, we don't want to do that. We understand that the Word of God and the Spirit of God must illuminate a person's mind on these, on these issues, okay? Doctrinal issues as well. Uh, most, most people that I've encountered, even new believers, they don't, they don't understand the Word of God enough to just accept it on its face with some things, okay? they still of the opinion, I've got to examine this, I've got to take this apart. And, and I see some goodness in that. Uh, I was kind of the other way. If it was in the Bible, I believed it. But it's not that easy. It's, you know, you got to, you know, because like I say, it's not written in English and it's not a... Uh, it's not from around here, you know. It's spirit, <laughs> spirit breathed, and we've got to look at it more intently. It's hard. I think it's hard for people these day and age, especially with social media and the, the brashness of dialogue, that it's hard for people to be gentle and not prideful. Like well, they want to, as we say, own the room. Okay, that that has no place. You know, that that in and of itself is self, is a selfish motivation. If you follow what I'm saying. You see that attitude pop up in the business world. I see it in 
meetings that I have to go to around the conference table, even in my job. Okay, it becomes about whose idea is it over and above. Is it the right thing to do? Is it the, is it the timely thing to do? So, yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know their heart, and you don't know what's going to cause them to stumble. Yeah. Because, now, like, if this else just meat or whatever, then that person goes back and eats that meat, and then, but it could cause them to stumble and start thinking about that idolatry and that whatever, and yeah. maybe shift them back into it, and you don't want them to do that. Yeah. It could be a host of things. A host of things. Teenager wanting to go to a movie. Young Christian teenager. And just as a matter of practice, as a matter of commitment, they will not go to an R-rated movie. Well, all their friends are going to this movie. Well, it's, it's R because of the violence. It's not because of the... Oh, well, you know, it's just a commitment I have. Aren't you going to come with us? No. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it brings conflict. Uh, but we just don't ever want to be encouraging somebody to go against their conviction... If we're if it's a doctrinal issue, we we're we're charged. We're to we're to explain. We're to plead in some cases. We're to uh, go go to the nth degree in a loving way to show them the word more clearly, just like they did with what was it, Apollos? I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah, and you got to know what you're talking about. You got to, yeah, you got to, yeah, you got to, you got to know the ins and outs. It always helps to know the rebuttal, what you're going to get. And you know, we're not always prepared for that. And I'm, I'm just, I don't know, if I'm not wholly prepared for something, I've learned to just say that. See, I know what the Word of God says about that. I know my own conviction about it. I've been through this to the point where I'm settled in my own conviction. And because I am, I don't remember every little jot and tittle about how I came to that conviction. I just remember going through the process. So let me get back with you. You need all that information, I'll, I'll get it for you. Okay. And it's that, it's that complex sometimes. question is, are we willing to do that? You know, are we willing to do it? And always making this distinction between doctrinal issues and these issues of preference and so forth. <coughs> because the workings of the conscience where these issues of preference are concerned are still important. Why? Because we don't want people going against their conscience in that. Even though the thing itself is not a problem, it's not a sin, we don't want to be a part of that. He says, even though the act itself is not morally or spiritually wrong, it becomes wrong when it is committed against conscience. Committed against conscience. So, at what point do you, I mean, I was thinking about what he was saying about, you know, I become all things to all peoples by all means. I mean, when so, right. it's like you have to then think about do you limit yourself or how do you limit yourself in the face of somebody that has those convictions, if you will, or those preference things, if you will. That's, that's the hard balance, I think. Yeah. And I've, I think I learned a lesson in that area, Chris. I, I didn't do it very. I didn't do a very good job one time. Uh, <coughs> I'll share something personal with you. So, uh, it deals with alcohol. Okay, um, 
See, alcohol, in, in my experience and in my family life, has left nothing but a trail of sorrow. <laughs> okay, even to this very day in our, my extended family. Uh, and I had some things happen to me when I was young, 11 or 12, that involved alcohol. And it's like a lightning bolt hit me, and I said, I will never, never be a part of that. And that's, and I understand, you know, nowadays, you know, I, I've got <laughs> friends that drink a beer or have a glass of wine. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. But for me, I, I, when I started my own home and everything, I'm a teetotaler. I don't have any alcohol in my home. And I had some relatives one time, knowing that, kind of pushed the envelope a little bit at a, a gathering I was having at my house, and they brought some alcohol. And I didn't handle it very well. This was years ago, 25 years ago. Didn't handle it very well. Uh, and I damaged a couple of relationships because of the way I handled it at that time. And I look, I look back on that. Had my genuine concern been for these folks, okay, I would have handled it totally different. I was just at a different place in my Christian walk and knowledge as we all were 25 years ago. But I go back and look at that. <clears throat> and it was only years later when I, be, I became more, more in tune with what should have happened on that day at my home that I actually went back to these people and apologized to them. And then I began seeing a mending of relationship. Not that everything went down the twos, but, you know, there was just a shadow, you know, over, over some things. Uh, and I look, back, I look back at that. Maybe you have similar experiences. I don't know. I think, I think most of us do in that regard. Here's the good news. If your heart is right and you want to be used of the Lord and you genuinely do love people and you understand where they are and you see the, this wonderful potential that each person has in Christ, even as believers, uh, we don't want to go in there and, 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 and ram our experience down somebody else's throat because we know that don't work. The Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, changes a person's heart and life. And our biggest thing is don't be a hindrance to that. Don't be a hindrance. You know? And if that's our motivation, I think you'll have the words sometime. I think it's an issue of timing sometimes. Not just what do I say, but when do I say what? That's what the Holy Spirit does. And you'll see Him working in your heart and life with other people. And you'll know instantly that He's the one that made that happen. Right? All you did was show up for service. You genuinely love people. That's your desire. And He's going to do the rest. He's going to do the rest. So, very good. Thank you for the questions. And that was, we got to... 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 7. I had two more scriptures to look at. Uh, 8, 10. We'll, yeah, that'd be a good place for us to start next time. We'll go back and review this a little bit and then look at 8, 10 and then 8, 12. And then I've got a list of uh, some practical evaluations we can do in determining what kind of things we're going to be involved in in our Christian walk and witness. Let's pray together.